Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I have esteemed guest Dr. Larry Steckel back on the podcast with us this afternoon. Larry, how are you, man? I'm good, Jason. Esteemed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But yeah, yeah. I'm doing good. I hope y'all are doing good. He's he's <laughs> elevated you. He's just trying to make your head swell, man. That's what... <laughs> Oh yeah, it's getting big now. <laughs> world world famous Larry Steckel. <laughs> Renowned Larry Steckel. You could just basically Larry, plug anything you want to in front of that. Plug some. You could. There's lots of different adjectives. <laughs> some of them are negative. <laughs> Legendary figure. See, I get all the negative ones. <laughs> Which, that's because that's, that's you're a plant pathologist. I know. That's, we usually are just there to do autopsies. It's By fun. the time people are worried about plant pathology, everybody's hot and tired. Yeah, and the plants are sometimes dead. We talk a lot of my house about being hot and tired and cranky, and sometimes you're just tired and you get cranky. Yeah. That's your world, Tom. By the time people worry about plant diseases, everybody's just over it. They're just ready for a combine. I know. Larry, I've asked a couple people this. I asked Daniel back in the spring sometime, and then I asked somebody else Trey Price, I also asked this too. What is the craziest thing you've ever seen when you've gone and looked at a field? I actually seen this twice, and it was really funny. When well, you all are, we got airplanes. You may have seen it, but uh, I got called on paraquat drift on soybeans, and then I got got to look at it. it wasn't just the soybeans; it it was the next field and the next field over, and we followed this thing for a mile, and. We weren't just that far from an airport, and having called the FAA uh, to get the, just on this ferry. But when the, there's an emergency landing by a jet, one of the first things they got to do is dump their fuel. And in theory, if you're above 10,000 feet, the fuel vaporizes before it hits the ground. But that wasn't the case here. That fuel hit the ground. It looked just like paraquat drift, but it just went for miles. That's probably the craziest thing I've been to that. You know, just blew my mind. Uh, you walk into the field, it looked like, it looked mostly like paraquat drift. It was a little more runny uh, than the typical spots you see. They were a little more oblong, but uh, it just went went on for a long, long distance, and there wasn't any other way it could have got, got there but from an airplane. It was, it was uh, dumping fuel and then uh, and then landing. They had to do an emergency dump fuel. I guess they got a place over, over the Mississippi River they do it. And in theory, it's supposed to volatilize and never make it to the ground. But some of this did the ground. sounds kind of sketchy. <laughs> That's cool, man. <laughs> I figured you had a good one. Whenever you come down here and do a talk for us, you always have just a just series of pictures, and you you basically just stand up there and tell a story. And I'll kind of halfway pattern mine after yours, and albeit you do a much better job at it than I do, but I figured you had a pretty good story oh. back there in your memory <laughs> bank somewhere. Hence esteemed. And actually, I was on a jet. It's actually a weed science meeting. Uh, we were supposed to fly out to Hawaii, and our plane had to do an emergency landing, and we banked over San Francisco, over the bay, <laughs> jumped fuel, and then landed. That <laughs> was not Did- fun, I can tell you. I thought that was- Didn't you come back home that year? Didn't you just skip the meeting and come back home? Oh, yeah, there wasn't any more. We were smoking. We were at 30-some thousand feet, and there was smoke in the cabin. 
and and the and the pilot gets on and and tells us that we're going to make an unscheduled landing in San Francisco. We we're supposed to land in Hawaii, <laughs> and uh, Ben Tom, he thought he switched off us, but and he was talking to the tower. <laughs> he wasn't <laughs> talking to the tower. <laughs> it was. Uh, you got to clear a runway. We we got emergency landing orders. Anyway, what had happened is a water line had broke, and the plane was shortened out and was without power. I, all I knew was that the first thing was at 36,000 feet, the landing gear come down. You knew something was wrong then. <laughs> so, it was a good thing you put the landing gear down because he was without power not long after that, and uh, he wouldn't have got him down. We would have bellied in, I guess. That would have most likely been um, my last airplane trip. <clears throat> I would have driven home. <laughs> well, we... <laughs> Me and Sandy went to the Tampa Valley and drank enough wine to get back to the plane. <laughs> so I've been, I've been on both ends of those. All right. Well, we anyway. appreciate y'all listening today. I think that'll, I think that'll about wrap it up, <laughs> wrap if you will. Jeez. Uh, Tom, why don't you get us going and, and propose to Larry the idea that you had? Uh, I'll get us the 30,000-foot image yeah, then on there this. You go. So. <clears throat> Jason and I had been discussing some podcast ideas and potential guests for a couple of evenings, I think, just shooting some text back and forth. And I said, well, what about a what about a retrospective on pigweed management uh, in this era where basically glyphosate gets crossed off the list because we have so much resistance and kind of revisiting some of those topics and seeing where that's uh, moved over time, given that it's been basically, I don't know, 15 years probably since Roundup resistance has been detected within the greater pigweed population. You know, and I know y'all had that pigposium, whatever year that was, 09 or 10 or 11 or yeah, now I don't remember. They all run together. And those were so well received, but I think we haven't necessarily lost touch of where we are on managing Palmer amaranth, but it would be nice to kind of revisit that with some specific weed scientists and discuss those things that have, de have developed since the initial detection of that resistance. The first, of course, documented on glyphosate resistance was Culpepper down in Georgia first documented. I think officially he did it in 2004, but he knew it like a year ahead of that. It just takes that long that he got all the I's and crossed all the T's to get it done. A year later, uh, we documented it here, and it really was 2004. I had a pretty good inkling. We went back to the field 2005 and got the same results, did the greenhouse work. And then in 2006, we, we announced it. And then Bob Scott uh, over in Arkansas documented it just across the river. And I, technically, I think it was still in Tennessee, just how the river goes, but it was on the Arkansas side of the river. But uh, I don't know what it is about that. At Mississippi Valley, but it seems like those pigweed bears where a lot of the resistance first started and it just kind of got rolling from there. The level of resistance uh, really wasn't real high at first in that 2006, 2007, 2008. You could, you could overcome it by up in the rate, uh, but by 2009 and 10, that ended. Uh, you couldn't put the jug on it and kill it. So we just kept up in the rate and then selecting for those few individuals that were surviving the up rate to the point you, it got to the point you're, you're not going to control it anymore. Roundup. And then, you know, Jason, you were in all this. So then it was, well, now what do we do? Well, it was overlapping residuals and just trying to keep a residual on there and trying to keep it from ever coming up and, and begging folks to get the hoods out, the post-direct rigs and, and uh, get some things in underneath there like, 
like Vermoxone. We had a number of farmers do that just to try and rescue the tri- crop. Uh, bought a lot of the, a lot of hoods and a lot of paraquat went out in hoods and some of the first areas we had real issues with it. Then the here the the, the Liberty Link trait come out and that that jumped in and that helped a lot. But still we were having some issues. And then the dicamba trades come out. And at least here in Tennessee, I think y'all are pretty much over there too, right? It's, it's pretty much all extend. But now we're seeing issues with that in a number of fields where where dicamba's no longer controlling it at the 1X and even in some fields up to the 2X rate. And I would suspect in a few years we'll be up to where you can put the jug of dicamba on and not kill them. That precedent's there, right? You go back prior to glyphosate resistance and we had ALS-resistant Palmer. So that's in the 90s at some point. And, Larry, you go out here in my field now, and we have a lot of nut sedge in our field, and we rotate plots one year, and then we follow it the next year to, to even everything back out. So we'll put permit on our field, a full rate of permit, so not even like a rice rate. We'll do an ounce to an ounce and a third of permit, and we won't kill any pigweeds. I mean, I'll kill the sedge, kill most of the morning glories, but I won't kill any pigweeds out there. So it's full-blown ALS resistant, and we haven't used an ALS herbicide targeting of palm amaranth around here since Roundup came along, really, because of the, that resistance was so bad sure. already. So what you're saying, it's just logical that we have populations that are bulletproof to Roundup. We will eventually have populations that are bulletproof to dicamba if we stay on the track that we are, which y'all are already begun that journey and i those of you listening if you hadn't heard the episode we did last year with larry when he talked about the dicamba resistance that he has in palmer in west tennessee i encourage you to go back and listen to that because that's a pretty some pretty eye-opening information that he related in it last year we've just done a lot of the greenhouse greens this year on populations and we clearly have upped the game uh as far as the level of tolerance already within you know two years ago from the samples we, we ran when we were we discussed it last. Uh, you know, we're up to some living through pretty high rates in the greenhouse, towards the 88 ounces. So that in the greenhouse, that got to be graveyard dead. So uh, it's it's really gotten worse, and a lot of it is cross resistance to 2,4-D. Not all of it. Some of it is. Some of it isn't. That's that's kind of interesting. And you know, some of these populations, I think there's a little bit of me- metabolic resistance, kind of similar to what they're seeing in, Ar- in Arkansas on, you know, dual warrant, those type herbicides, because uh, the numbers of days of residual you get out of those is reduced on these populations. It's not zero, but it's not three plus weeks like you'd expect. It's, it's in the high teens. So we're, we're losing some on there too. So we got, it looks like best estimate is we got metabolic resistance in the mix on this as far as the resistance goes. I was really concerned we had liberty resistance on our side of the river just from what, what we saw in the field last year. That's been the one bright spot on the greenhouse screening we've done so far this year is where liberty's still working very well uh, on our greenhouse screen. So uh, I think we'll get another year out of liberty. Of course, the other thing is you can't get liberty yeah. right <laughs> this year. So you got that issue, and of course the price is real high. I don't know where we go from here. Liberty is one thing I wanted to ask you about, Larry. So if you rewind the clock in 12 years or so, even before that, for whatever reason, the Liberty Link trade itself just never took off. But when we started spraying Liberty on wide strike cotton, I think most of the Mid-South states sprayed a lot of Liberty 
on wide strike cotton for Palmer. And now in, in later years, when we had some good Liberty Link soybean varieties, that year or two prior to Extend being commercialized, we sprayed a lot of Liberty then in areas, yeah. at least in areas of our state, maybe more widespread for y'all. So how did we dodge the resistance bullet with Liberty? Or how have we dodged it up to this point? That's a real good question. And this is my guess. I don't know for sure. I think some of it is Liberty's never been 100% foolproof on pigweed. It's pretty temperamental. You always leave some that are susceptible. So I think you keep them in the mix. Okay. That's my thought on it, on why we're, we've got some out there. There's just always a susceptible population out there in the mix. Well, what I remember with glyphosate and Palmer down here, particularly after two or three years of dealing with the problem, you'd kind of see two things, you know, like a uniform, maybe 50 to 70% control at say seven days. And then you would get a bunch of those regrow and those were the resistant ones. And then some would die, but then you might go five miles down the road and spray a field. And like you said, it was just zero. You'd have to look at something else, another weed in the field to even know that you sprayed it. So that was my recollection of, of seeing that back down the line. So I can see what you're saying about the Liberty leaving some susceptible plants out there that are going to survive and produce seed and continue on to the next generation. That's the only thing I can figure is we just got susceptible ones live and they, they're st- still in the mix and it's really slowed down the evolution of resistance. I guess they got it in Arkansas, that, but fortunately not in Tennessee. Well, fortunately not down here that I know of, at least. How do you think the glyphosate resistance has strained the rest of the herbicide system, Larry? I I mean, you you mentioned Liberty. How how has it put an additional strain on dicamba and 2,4-D, at least in Tennessee? Yeah, it just was no help at all. That's a real good point. It just really, it was no help at all on pigweed. And so dicamba had to do all the heavy lifting. You know, we had people kind of go back to the old habits and not doing residuals and all that kind of stuff. So just putting all the pressure on dicamba. And now we're getting back to using residuals and stuff again, but the horse is kind of out of the barn. I, I don't know where where we're going here on, on herbicides. I don't know really any new one that's going to come and bail us out. I think we're going to be back to where we were on uh, overlapping our residual herbicides. You know, maybe the HPPD trait uh, will be here and can help some. You know, there's resistance to that. In, in Palmer, in, in some other states too. So it might be a short-lived answer. Well, and then what about from a research standpoint? I mean, you, you raise a, a pretty important topic there. How much more should we invest? And when I say we, I mean just from an overall standpoint of being researchers and, and like-minded individuals within university systems, but how much effort should we continue in investing in, say, surveys to determine how widespread this resistance issue is? Can we just assume that it's widespread throughout the population in the state and in each of our respective states, or is that something that we should, you know, sink a bunch of time into? Well, I think we need to monitor it now. For, at this point, we're any port, port in the storm. So if you can get partial control out of any herbicide, it's going to have to be thought of being a tool and being in play. That's definitely, you know, you get a handle on what's working and what isn't in, in your given area and then and, and try and formulate a plan around using those herbicides. So in the short term, I think we, we need to keep uh, monitoring it. Long term, 
Pat Trannell's one of the more smarter metabolic herbicide researchers on, on the planet. And uh, he gave a talk not too long ago. And he, he said, you know, he thought we were kind of ending the era of herbicide, you know, primarily for weed control. And where I'm standing, especially with pigweed, I, I couldn't argue with him. We definitely got to have some newer herbicides, but this metabolic resistance makes you wonder if um, those won't be all that effective very long either, even if they come out here shortly to help us out. Larry, just a point of clarification for folks that don't know, give us just a real high-level explanation of metabolic resistance. I don't know if I'm the best one to, to describe it, but it's um, basically it's, it's, it's something that a lot of plants have because uh, – you know, they've evolved it because they've grown in areas that had toxic substance in, in the soil that was going to get them, you know, way before man was ever here. So they developed enzymes that helped detoxify these foreign substances. There's a whole family of them called cytochrome P450. That's one of the big families of them. Well, it turns out they also detoxify herbicides, in, in, particularly in pigweed and in some other species. They've kind of selected for those that are developed enough for these enzymes to, to detoxify a lot of the herbicides and not just one herbicide uh, like we've always been used to uh, but uh, a lot of herbicides and it's not full-blown resistance on a lot of them but it's just kind of incremental resistance so it, it just adds up over time and it, it's broad spectrum it can be dual it can be dicamba it could be roundup but they're all in play that's the real concern we've got going forward and that's different than what a lot of people associate with herbicide resistance particular species it doesn't have to be palmer say it's glyphosate resistance but hey we can still kill it with liberty or we can still kill it with dicamba that's not metabolic resistance metabolic resistance is often described as just pandora's box once you open it up it's you're going to have challenges with a variety of different products you really are and so things that we don't pour out of a jug we're really going to have to start digging in too hard or folks across the river have been doing stuff with um, you know grinding the seed up in the back of the combine i think that could be a big help some of the sea and spray stuff that's still kind of herbicide but i, I think they're developing some of that down down y'all's way you know you can spray a very non-selective herbicide maybe one we're not even using now or you know sitting on a shelf somewhere uh that's very <laughs> will kill anything but when you can spray it precisely on a weed and miss the crop you know it might help open up a box of different herbicides that we currently can't use. Uh, gosh, maybe we use sodium chlorate, you know, something like that. It's with that sea and spray technology, if they can get that up and going and, and running like, like they're starting to advertise. So that was my, uh, really, I had two questions, Larry. But go ahead and stay in this same train of thought. What is the way forward? I mean, if Pat Trannell is correct in saying that the age of herbicides is over, at least in the case of Palmer, then what's the way forward? You mentioned the seed destructor. You mentioned the sea and spray. But we're talking about some really, one, expensive implements, and naturally the price will come down as supply and demand start to get together. But a struggle I have is doing stuff on scale. You know, I might do something that works pretty good in a plot, but then the challenge is translating that into 1,000 acres, into... 100,000 acres into 2.2 million acres of soybeans across the state. So I guess, you know, speculate on other ideas or possibilities of what the way forward is from where we are now. Well, some of it, our way, we we all do a lot of the 
irrigation may not be, but cover crops here really help a lot. And you can do that fairly large scale. And we have in some cases here. Um, so that's, that's a non herbicide where I've used cover crop and gotten good pans. I, I cut down the number of pigweed that come up 50%. You put a couple of residual herbicides in there with it. And you're, you basically don't put a lot of pressure on any kind of post application. So that would definitely be one. Maybe thing get again, get that seed spray going and keep the seed from getting thrown back into the seed bank are, are things that, you know, come to mind very readily. And I think, you know, integrated together could help a lot. There's maybe some other things out there that kind of just way outside the box that we need to start thinking of, but it's, it's time we need to start, <laughs> start looking at some options other than just relying on herbicides, particularly one herbicide every, every year. Larry, the other thing I was thinking about, and this kind of related to this too, but thinking back over the time since we discovered glyphosate-resistant Palmer, how has that phenomenon influenced farming in West Tennessee? I mean, you hadn't been there very long when you first found um, those first resistant populations. So in that time, how has farming changed? When a farmer I know here pretty well said, uh, he, he summed it up real well. He goes, I don't try and grow cotton. I try not to grow pigweed. <laughs> his whole mindset going into to raising his crop. And uh, I think that mindset was, you know, we just using residual herbicides, trying to be timely with, with Liberty and spraying it at the right times and, you know, getting hoods out, you know, if you got a small spot of it starting somewhere, getting out and yanking it out. Uh, we had folks methyl bromide and pickers and combines before they moved them from one field that was really infested to another part of the farm that didn't have many pigweed. Uh, people really starting to think outside of the box. And every day thinking about managing pigweed uh, was in, in their thought process, not just raising the crop. And I think that was one of the things that really pointed out to me uh, the change of just that one weed had here, here in Tennessee when Roundup no longer would control it. Well, and honestly, that's, that's probably the next hurdle. Should we start seeing more dicamba resistance across a much larger area? is that's probably going to have to be the mentality in more geographies if those have been things that have worked in West Tennessee. So at least you'll be able to relay some of that information, what worked, what didn't work, because obviously that's, that's a reality I think that we're all going to be faced with. It's just a real integrated approach, uh, dealing with a lot of things to try and manage pigweed, just the whole crop process from planting the crop, the crop rotation to, uh, roll with a cover crop to what herbicides you're going to put and when, when to put them on and, and, and being timely uh, are just so important. And at least here we're getting more overhead irrigation and that really helps as far as getting herbicides activated and that's from a residual standpoint. So that, that's a big plus. One real bright spot now compared to where we were when we first, when first round up ready resistance came out is we didn't have any peroxisulfone then. That herbicide still holding up really haven't seen metabolic resistance be a problem with it yet. And it's, it's we're really leaning on it hard uh, here. But I keep trying to tell folks it's working well. We need to keep it working well. And so we got to use a lot of these other herbicides we were using in the past. Again, any port in the storm and, and uh, keep the overall numbers down and not just put complete selection pressure on Zidua and then on the Phenoxys over the top. Larry, what do you say to a guy that says, well, it's okay, I've got dicamba or it's okay, I've got 2,4-D, or it's okay, I've got Liberty. 
Yeah, I I don't know. I I've never been successful there convincing a guy to change, and it's kind of like I don't know. You, you, it's almost like kind of analogy is, is you have your first heart attack or something, and you go along and think I'm fine, I'm fine, and then all of a sudden you you have a health issue like a heart problem, and all of a sudden then then you start exercising and eating right, all that kind of stuff, and that's <laughs> it's been better to be preemptive and done this stuff before you had had a heart problem. So I think it's the same way with, with this resistance is it's trying to manage herbicides that do work. That's more important probably than uh, using herbicides that partially work, but are you know, still very effective, but using them in a way that you're not putting just complete and intense selection pressure on them uh, to keep them around and keep the shelf life a little longer than you would otherwise. Larry, first of all, thank you. I, I think that's super important important information and i think you know revisiting some of these herbicide resistance issues are important especially given the 2022 cropping season the the hurdles we have right now with with uh, being able to get a hold of products product price and all the rest of that so I, i really think that's super beneficial for our listeners and we really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with us thanks larry appreciate the invite y'all The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.